Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. teacher of the Taoist internal martial arts for over 20 years. Since 2008, he has been an adjunct faculty member at the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, CIIS, where he teaches Tai Chi. Alistair has a volunteer, was a volunteer with Zen Hospice Project from 2004 to 2014 and was hired to serve as the volunteer program manager uh, last year. His other volunteer work includes working as a Buddhist chaplain at San Francisco General Hospital <coughs> and leading meditation sessions for inmates in the San Francisco County Jail. Uh, Alistair has a degree in philosophy and uh, all sorts of other good stuff, so I won't uh, embarrass you too much. But Alistair, welcome very much. Thank Happy you. to have you here. Thank you for having me back. Um, <coughs> I was during the meditation. I was just kind of luxuriating in the in the stillness of this space. It's really quite a lovely place to sit. Um, I had uh, <clears throat> a very hard time settling on a topic to talk about today, and um, I was jo joking with John over there on Thursday that I still didn't know what I was going to talk about. And um, I think it was because uh, there were so many things that I, I want that, that I could have talked about that I was interested in. Um, but uh, what I ultimately ended up settling on was the topic of ethics. And um, part of the reason for that is that I did a, a, a talk recently at another Sangha on ethics. and. It always stimulates my thinking and different perspectives on, on the ideas. Um, and um, somehow it seems relevant in these ethically challenged times politically. 
but I intend to steer well clear of the political aspect of it and um, talk really about it more in a very personal day-to-day -day way. And I find that the, both the word ethics and morality to be problematic for me. Um, they both seem heavily weighted with cultural baggage, uh, not to mention personal emotional associations, um, you know, feelings of uh, associations of scolding, you know, perhaps by various adults, Catholic nuns, parents, teachers. So I would like to consider the word ethics uh, as more in the sense of non-harming. And um, in, in Buddhism, the term is ahimsa, uh, harmlessness or non-harming which is actually um, uh, a notion that goes back well beyond, before the Buddha. Uh, in India, the Jains were practicing non-harming before the Buddha was even born. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the Jains, they were uh, a, a religious sect that in their most extreme manifestation would have somebody walk in front of them and gently sweep the path so that they wouldn't inadvertently step on a bug. So I, I like this idea of non-harming. Um, I decided to title my talk The Bliss of Blamelessness, which is something that I heard at a Dharma talk many years ago myself, and I, I, I really it's always stuck with me. I really like that, the bliss of blamelessness. Um, and... For me, it's just about um, an awareness of how our actions can lead in different directions. Our actions and speech can lead toward harm or suffering, or it can lead toward well-being or positive outcome. And um, so there's this idea of just simply being aware of that possibility that whatever we do uh, can have the potential to go either direction. When we do something that harms another or harms ourselves, one of the things that it does is it creates remorse, worry, regret, agitation in the mind. So in a very practical sense, the idea of ethics or sila um, in Buddhism is the opportunity to keep the mind in a more open state for meditation. And I'm sure everybody here has had the experience of sitting in meditation and rehashing a conversation, an argument, a fight with a significant other, something that just you can't let go of. The mind just is agitated about this action uh, that we took. So sila is uh, a major part of the Eightfold Path. 
and it is comprised by uh, the, the pieces of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Um, and um, there's uh, something that I read recently that um, Joseph Goldstein's first teacher, Munindraji, said that um, trying to meditate to achieve enlightenment without having a foundation of morality and ethics of non-harming was like getting in a rowboat and trying to row across a lake without untying it from the dock. So I think that's a, I, I, like, I like that because it, it, it sort of indicates how our actions are tethered both to the world and to our sense of well-being. So this idea of ahimsa, harmlessness, non-harming in our actions, both towards others and for ourselves. It's also considered um, by some teachers that harmlessness is a synonym for compassion. That when we when we approach uh, when we approach our actions in this way, it is an expression of compassion. And in a very simple way, uh, really it's, it's about considering the feelings of others. And I like to think that um, good manners, I was brought up in a family where I had manners hammered into me. Um, and um, but on a very basic, and, I, and some people think that manners are sort of this esoteric thing of where you put the flatware and the table and how you lift your, your soup bowl, your spoon to your mouth, and various things like that. I like to think about manners as being about just considering the feelings of others. And I used to like to read, I, I haven't been doing it recently, but uh, the, the column by Miss Manners. <laughs> I, I loved it because that's really what it was about. Was it was about considering others' feelings. It was about gentleness. So to think and act ethically is to be aware of the law of cause and effect. We do something, it has an effect. And that's uh, a pretty basic law. That is the law of karma. Our actions have repercussions, regardless of what. And we may not always be aware of what those repercussions, what those results are. Uh, Damien Keown, who's a Buddhist scholar and monk, says that moral appreciation means caring about others and the effects one's acts or omissions will have upon them. So this brings up the question of practice. How do we practice non-harming? How do we practice ethics in the world? Um, obviously, within the the um, structure of the five precepts, we have a pretty clear code of conduct. Not killing, not lying, not stealing, not engaging, not, not taking intoxicating substances, and not engaging in sexual misconduct. 
So all of those are things that can bring uh, a heightened awareness to our place in the world. So for instance, spiders. I, I'm a little creeped out by spiders personally. I mean, there's little ones that I don't mind, and there's the skinny ones with the really long legs that aren't too scary. But some spiders are just e. However, I live in a house full of spiders. So, you know, I am in the habit of taking a glass, putting it over the spider, and taking it outside and throwing it outside. And for me, that makes me feel better than it would if I were to simply kill the spider. Um, you know that cartoon Garfield, one of the reasons I don't like that cartoon is that he's always killing spiders. So there, there's this sense of taking care of another being, of non-harming. Um, <clears throat> speech comprises a very major part of um, the, the teachings on ethics. And I always found that, that interesting, that speech was such, a, such an important part. And I'm going to say more about that in a little while. Um, one of the ways that I practice, I, I am in the unfortunate position of having to drive a lot in my life. Uh, I have a seven-year-old son who lives in the Sunset, and I live on Potrero Hill, and I'm constantly driving back and forth, and I have to drive for other things, too, in my work. And um, I find driving to be the probably the highest level of spiritual practice there is for me. <laughs> I find it incredibly challenging, and I also find that I'm constantly confronted with moral ethical choices in the course of driving. And so if I'm in a hurry, and it, one of the things that happens for me is the merging thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have two lanes coming into one and everybody knows that they're supposed to merge over and you have the people that zoom up and try to get in at the last moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that, that when I'm in a hurry, I get really aggravated about that stuff and I have to be really careful uh, I have at times really, you know, that thing where they try to get in and you try to stop them. It's horrible. <laughs> it really it really is. And, you know, in a sense of non-harming, when I do that, I feel agitated. I, I, I don't feel good about it. Um, and uh, in the times when I've been able to let go of that or wave somebody in, the opposite happens. I, I'm able to sort of open up, to relax, to let go. At the very least, this non-harming is about not harming myself, because it really does harm me to act in that way. It, it's painful. So when I was in, in um, graduate school, I developed what I had. I was taking a class called Mysticism and Social Change, and we were encouraged to do a project where we did some sort of practice in the world, and I chose as my practice driving. <laughs> and as I said, I mean, I'm, I'm often in a hurry, going back and forth, 
And one of the things that you realize when you drive in this city, and probably most cities, is that nobody comes to a full stop at a stop mm -hmm. sign. And um, in fact, if you do come to a full stop, then everybody else goes. So you sort of have to, you know, roll through. And so I decided I was going to come to a full stop because I realized that part of what that was doing to me, it was, it was, it was making me suffer. Driving can make me suffer. And uh, sometimes my practice is simply to just notice this, this is suffering. My actions are causing me to suffer. So anyway, I started this practice of coming to a full stop and even taking a breath. And it was really quite remarkable what a difference that made. But it brought up another problem, the people behind me. Because, because nobody stops, if you come to a full stop, and especially if you take a breath, they're like, uh -uh, you know, what the hell are you doing? And so I had to balance those things. I was trying to practice non-harming in a way, and I was creating aggravation for somebody else behind me. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so I started using driving in this way. Another thing that I would do, I realized that I was projecting all kinds of nasty things at the other people. I was, I was in competition with them. Uh, they had malign intent. I mean, I would take it personally when when people would not come to a full stop or not take their turn at a four-way stop. It was like it was against me personally. And so I started to send meta to people, regardless of what they did. You know, may you may you be protected and safe. May you be happy. May be, may you be peaceful. May you be free from suffering. I also like to think that that person is in a hurry, and I know what it's like to be in a hurry, and and that person is suffering too. So to recognize the the universal universality of that kind of suffering, even while we're all driving, was something that I found to be very helpful. <clears throat> and it, it helped to break the cycle somewhat of anger and that, that churning mind that I have. And I don't want to suggest that I've been totally successful at this <laughs> and that now I'm the you know most polite driver in San Francisco. It's a practice. It really is a practice. And I think that we can bring that degree of mindfulness and attention to all of the actions that we take in the world. Um, you know, you wouldn't normally think of something like driving as being a spiritual practice, but, but it is. Another thing that I do when, when, this, when it happens, when somebody does something that, that gets me, me uh, reactive, is I, is I just feel how it feels in my body. I notice the energy, the clenching in the chest or the throat, the, the, the racing of the heart, the, the, the resistance. And just simple body awareness, coming back to my body, just feeling my physical body.
can be very helpful. So, how do we know if an action is ethical or not? Hopefully, by its effect, cause and effect. We do something, something happens. If it has a beneficial effect, then at least theoretically, that should be an ethical action. But there's another aspect to, to, to action and acting in the world and karma also, and that's intention. And so the, the intention with which we perform any action is critically important, our motivation. And that's something that... Um, motivation is something that I struggled with for a while when I was um, first a hospice volunteer. Because, um, for one thing, I really, uh, I really got a lot out of it. Um, and uh, it was also something, it, it made me feel good about myself. And so I thought to myself, well, why am I doing, am I doing this for myself? Because we have, I think, this idea, <clears throat> I, I'm not a big fan of this idea of altruism. I think that acting altruistically is a great thing. But I think that I'm not entirely sure that any action is completely altruistic. So I started examining my intention in hospice every time I went to do my shift. And just the idea of motivation in general. You know, what is motivation? Is motivation ever pure? And what I discovered for myself was that my motivation was never pure. It was always an alloy. It was always a mixture of, of wanting to do something good, wanting to do well, wanting to help, and getting a good feeling or getting something from my... There was some self-identification. And the conclusion I came to is that until at some point I become a fully awakened being right, in several eons, <laughs> I am always going to have some self-identification with my actions. So I found that I had to drop that idea of altruism that, that when I act uh, out of my own good intention that it has to somehow be pure. I don't think our actions have to be pure as long as our intention is to do, is to do well, is to, is to help. We can also do things, and this is a tricky thing about intentions, we don't always know what the effect of our actions will be. We, we can't know. Our actions ripple out in the world like, you know, ripples in a pond. You throw a stone in a pond and the ripples go out. But we don't know what happens on the far shore. 
And so sometimes we can do something with the best of intention. And I've had this happen where I've walked into a room, you know, you know, wanting to be the good hospice volunteer and introduced myself, and they've thrown me out. And I felt, oh, shit, you know, I, I caused them distress. So really all we have is our intention, and we don't know how it will be received. We can also say something to somebody that might be hurtful to them in the moment, but it might be just what they need to hear at that time. Compassionate action is not always really nice. So I'm thinking, for instance, with people with addiction problems. I have struggled with addiction in my past, and I know many people who have, and I, you know, did an intervention for a friend. I know, I know what that feels like. Sometimes you have to say to somebody, you are harming yourself, you are harming others, and they don't want to hear it, and it causes them suffering. But it needs to be said, or in the long run, it may be beneficial. So it's never quite so simple that we just act in, in one way and everything is good, we act in another way and things go bad. But intention is the key. If we act from good intention, then I think that that's all we can do. We can't control the outcome. So our actions, you know, you can consider actions and speech uh, which is an action in, in binaries of good, bad, skillful, unskillful, wholesome, unwholesome. Um, regardless of what word you use, um, being aware of our intention and our motivation, that our intention and motivation is always to bring people to a place of non-suffering. To, um, to, to do no harm. One of the things that I, um, I emphasize in our hospice trainings uh, is just simply love. And again, love is another one of those words that is really uh, a little bit problematic because it carries so many Western notions of romanticism and romantic love and sexuality and but but just love love for another human being love love for the happiness of another this idea of meta or loving kindness um, and I think that in a way love is kind of the foundation of all moral or ethical behavior if you love yourself, if you love people, you will act in ways that are non-harming. And, um, you know, to go back to the driving, I am often not in a state of love when I'm driving. I mean, I have aggression that comes up, real aggression and anger. And, and it's uncomfortable. It's, suff it's, it's suffering. Um, but again, it's this idea of we practice with that. We practice with feeling love. I mean, 
one of the things that I, I want to talk about too is interdependence because regardless of how I feel when I'm driving uh, or at any given time in my life the reality is is that we're all interdependent we, we are all interconnected in profound ways and this is, this is the, the, the absolute bedrock of, of the twelve-fold chain of dependent origination, that everything is dependent on causes and conditions. In fact, we can do a thought experiment. Just sit here and look around the room and see if you can see or think of anything that is not dependent on other causes and conditions. And if you put aside the idea of a divine being, a creator, you can do this with everything and you will not find a single thing that isn't dependent on prior causes and conditions. Thich Nhat Hanh calls this interbeing, that we all inter-are. We all had parents, we all had people who nurtured us, who taught us, who fed us, who brought us up. We had friends, we had colleagues at work who supported us. Our parents and the parents before them, everybody is in that same situation. So I want to leave lots of time for, um, for discussion. Um, I'm going to skip some things here. Um, I will read this that um, I mentioned this theory of dependent origination, this 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 twelvefold chain of cause causation, um, that everything owes its existence to to everything else, and as uh, um, this Buddhist teacher Dharamsiri put it, um, because my existence is dependent on the rest of the universe. I naturally owe a debt and an obligation to the rest of the universe. And uh, this is uh, straight from the, uh, the, the Pali Canon, the Sutta Nipata. As I am, so are these. As these are, so am I. Identifying himself with others, let him not kill nor cause anyone to kill. Uh, and I'm just going to read one more quote by the Dalai Lama because I find I, I really like this one. He, he says, I often joke that if you really want to be selfish, you should be very altruistic. You should take good care of others, be concerned for their welfare, help them, serve them, make more friends, make more smiles. The result? When you yourself need help, you find plenty of helpers. If, on the other hand, you neglect the happiness of others, in the long term, you will be the loser. And that gets back to, to what I was saying earlier about the, the, the idea of altruism or the purity of motivation, is that I really don't think it's, it's, um, a, it's a realistic thing to hold on to, that some degree of self-interest is is actually, um, it's not a bad thing. And at Zen Hospice Project, we train people to recognize what we call the mutuality of service. 
that when I sit with somebody at the bedside and they're dying, is that I may be giving them something in terms of my presence and compassion and companionship, but I'm also getting something back from them. And that that our relationships with people at the end of life are mutual. And what I have found is that people, just because people are at the end of life, it doesn't mean that they want to turn into people who just want to take. They want to give too. I've walked into rooms many times and people, you know, I'll sit down and they'll ask if I'm comfortable, if I want some water. I mean, people are concerned with my well-being. I had, I have a friend um, who developed, uh, a few years ago, developed a, a, a chronic terminal lung condition. And he was going to die in about a year, maybe more, if he didn't get a double lung transplant. And I started going to visit him once a week over in Berkeley, and um, we would just sit around and talk, and he was gasping for air, which is something that I can understand because I have grown up with asthma, but he was tethered to this long tube of oxygen and a compressor, and he was like really tied to his house. It was almost like he was a prisoner. And um, and as he waited for this double lung transplant, we talked about his ambivalence, about whether he wanted to do it, because somebody in that position, um, you know, the, a double lung transplant has uh, doesn't have a has about a fifty percent success rate, and even if it, everything goes perfectly, you may still die after twenty years. And so he was struggling with all of this, and I would go and see him, and we would have these wonderful talks. And I, he had not really been a friend of mine prior to this. He had been an acquaintance. He, was a, he had been a hospice volunteer. And when I found out he was sick, I, I, and I actually ran into him on the street before he was too debilitated, um, you know, we sort of struck up a friendship. But there was a certain point in our relationship when he looked at me and he said, would you have become my friend if I hadn't gotten sick? And I just, I felt that right here. What he was saying was that he didn't want to be the passive recipient of my compassion. He wanted to be in a relationship not a, I'm an altruistic helper. And I find that to be true with everybody that I've met in hospice. One of the uh, important things uh, that we need to do um, to pursue ethical action, to behave in ways of non-harming in the world, is to be able to look honestly at ourselves. Self-examination, mindfulness of the self and our motivations. Um, 
The teacher Adyashanti says, if you look at the human beings throughout history who are seen as exemplars of very spiritually awakened people, there is one thing you can always find at their central core. They are always people who had an absolutely ruthless honesty and integrity with themselves. So sometimes behaving in non-harming ways requires that we really look at ourselves and see the ways in which we manifest aggression um, or anger or act in ways that are hurtful to others or ourselves. And that's not an easy thing to do. And in saying that, I immediately, immediately recognize how easy that is to tip into self-judgment into superego, into feelings of worthlessness or not being not good enough. And I myself have struggled with those sorts of feelings a lot in my life. And the one thing that I know is that whenever we look at ourselves, we try to look at ourselves honestly, we have to do it with deep love and compassion. And one of the techniques that I have used to do that is is to see myself or conjure up an image of myself as a child. Because I am that child. And we all, you know, we're all in adult bodies, but our emotional conditioning was set by the time we were about six. And so I hold, when I find myself in, in one of those super ego judging states I try to hold myself I try to see myself as a small child who didn't understand who was suffering and it is suffering to feel that about yourself I thought that I would share um, a story from hospice um, that was an ethical conundrum for me. And it ultimately for me did come down to what seemed to be the least harmful course of action. So we have this woman at Laguna Honda, she's still there, she's 70 years old and she has very advanced dementia, does not speak, is non-responsive. Um, she will track with her eyes often, not always. Um, and she has uh, a very uh, wonderful son who comes with his wife to visit her several times a week from Oakland. And um, he has told me that they had discussions before she got like this. She was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. They had discussions about her not, if, if, if she were ever in that state, that she would want, uh, you know, whatever, uh, life support taken off, or um, she, she didn't want to end up that way. Mm -hmm. But she never filled out an advance directive. Mm -hmm. And she ended up that way. 
And so this is incredibly painful for the son, and I don't know what she feels, what she experiences, what her world is, but I imagine that it might be painful too. So this woman had never been known to talk in the many, many months that she'd been at hospice, and then a couple of months ago, one of our volunteers went in to see her, and there was a CNA, another nurse, there was a nurse in the room, and um, they were giving her some, some water, and, uh, you know, after taking a few sips, she, she, according to this volunteer, she whispered, wait a sec. <laughs> Now that in itself was astounding because this woman had not been known to speak any word to anybody. And she indicated that she needed some time. And so both the volunteer and the nurse heard this. And so the volunteer complimented her on being able to speak and tried to encourage her to say more um, and, and asked her to tell her what she wanted. And, and she got up close to her and she said she, she thought she whispered death. And they, were, they came out slowly and then there was a pause and the volunteer said, do you want to die? And she clearly whispered, absolutely. Now, in my role as a volunteer manager there, I hear a lot of things and I have relationships with the family members and so my conundrum was, do I tell the son? Nothing can be done for this woman. Legally, she has to live out her life the way she is. If I told the son, it would create untold suffering. Mm -hmm. Unquestionably, in my mind. So I had to make the decision, do I tell him or do I not? I decided I, didn't, I couldn't tell him. And it's not really my place to make that decision, but I just didn't want to create that degree of suffering for this beautiful man. And I'm not saying it's right. I don't know if it's right. But my metric was what is going to cause the least harm. That was it. So we're getting a little short on time. Um, I'm just going to read one thing here. This uh, is by Ivor Smith Cameron. I wonder what would happen if I treated everyone like I was in love with them whether I like them or not, and whether they respond or not, and no, ma no matter what they say or do to me, and even if I see things in them which are ugly, twisted, petty, cruel, vain, deceitful, indifferent, 
just accept all that and turn my attention to some small, weak, tender, hidden part and keep my eyes on that until it shines like a beam of light, like a bonfire I can warm my hands by and trust it to burn away all the waste which is not, never was, my business to meddle with. So um, we have a few minutes for questions or comments. Yes. Thank you for a great time talking. Yeah, um, thank you. Reminds me and taught me so many things. You know, like the Dalai Lama around us says, uh, you want to really be selfish, serve somebody. Yeah. It's the highest form of selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. The highest form of selfishness. Yeah, I like yeah. that. <laughs> and and in terms of uh, owning your own motivations for helping, you know, I used to train volunteers, and and it's you know, oh, I just want to give them everything, and I said, wait, you know, it's dishonest first of all, and uh, it's not possible, like you said, with intervening. You know, um, it makes us feel good, but it doesn't mean that we deny that, you know, and sort of, that's where shadow comes in. There are plenty of codependents who need you to be needy. Yeah. Yeah, it's very different from codependence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, I, I wondered if you address the issue of the sometimes arrogance of, self, of, of good intentions. Um, I mean, I have one instance in my life as a gay man where this Christian woman, a very sweet kind of woman, uh, I don't know whether she had any ego about what she was doing, but she, she was genuinely grieving that I'm a homosexual yeah. and wanted to do something to help me either get off the path or lead a celibate life or something. And um, I didn't see hatred or anger toward it. I just saw genuine pain on her part that I'm mm -hmm. leading this deviant lifestyle. And yet underneath that pain was a tremendous arrogance yeah. that she couldn't acknowledge that, you know, I, I'm living my life the way I, I see is best. Yeah, one of the things that I, I didn't get to in my talk was the idea of, of wisdom or clear seeing. Mm -hmm. And, and then that's actually a critical component, is to be able to see things as they are which is the role of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the practice of increasingly trying to see things as they actually are. And so for this woman, sadly, she, she was in a state of ignorance. Yeah, it was, again, it was ignorant, but it may be ignorant and not be arrogant. And yeah. there, there was, like she knew what was right, and she was trying to help me do what was right rather than what I was doing. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Intention, for her, that was a good intention. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to bring up what you said about clear seeing. I mean, as we know, actions have consequences and sometimes big consequences. And so we're imperfect beings that don't see things clearly, yeah. but we're forced every day to take small and big actions without seeing things clearly. So for me, it always gives me pause. I don't want to cause harm, yet I don't see things clearly enough to know. And then you end up kind of going with your gut. Do I think this is 
helpful or not cause harm or, you know? So I, I think it's a tricky business. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's, it's a good point. We, we can't know. That's uh, just the nature of, of this existence that we're in, is that we can't know the ultimate effects of, of what we do. We don't, we don't see things necessarily clearly. But I do think it's important to, to always be able to examine our motivation and intention, to look at it as clearly as we're able to, and, and to come from that place. And, and it might end up being arrogant, and it might end up harming in ways that we're completely ignorant of. But, you know, I guess we, we do our best. Yes. So I, I, I got to ask this question. So the woman who was Lugananda, did you tell the son that she spoke or? No, I did not. Did they that far? Okay. No. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about my experience because it just so I was very upset about the tax bill being passed Friday, and so yesterday I'm going in a crosswalk, walking across, and a car cuts me off. And you fuckers. This morning I on the phone with my 91-year-old Republican father. Now, I'm the one that started it. He doesn't care how much. <laughs> and so it's just kind of like, what showed me was like how angry I am and how I'm taking out other people. I'm, I'm really harming myself more than I'm harming the person I'm yelling at or you know, trying to make my father wrong. And uh, so thank you for your... Uh, and then I, I love your thing on altruism also because I do volunteer work and I feel good about it. But I know it's like it fills a day for me, and uh, you know I'm there to help but, uh, and learn. But also it's not completely it's selfish also in some ways. And I never thought about it in that way. So thank yeah. you for that. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you so much. Thank you. Know, you. Um, I really, uh, personally, I just really appreciated your talk about traffic mm -hmm. because a lot of times, you know, uh, I think myself and uh, you know maybe in general, we think of non-harming as like, well, I didn't scrape anybody's fender, right. you know, I didn't like cause physical harm. You know, there was no accident, right? So that's non-harming. Yeah. But it's much more subtle than that, and yeah. the way you delve uh, delve into it was really uh, very eye-opening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm. um, next week, uh, we will have Jennifer Berezon back. Uh, Jennifer is a unique blend of musician, teacher, and activist. Um, she has 10 albums out, um, singer, songwriter. So she's been with us before and leads us in song as well as weaves in into a Dharma talk. Um, you know, there's something special about getting vibrations to come out of your own body that really opens you up to uh, not just yourself, but to the words that are spoken in the, the Dharma as well. So I encourage you to please come. Um, Donna is the Pali word for uh, generosity, and so that is what sustains our Sangha and allows us to meet in this beautiful place and uh, put out our newsletter, of over half of which go to prisoners by the way, and um, various other outreach and things. So please be generous. We, uh, there's a Donna Bowl. Um, it's $10 is a suggested uh, midpoint or something. So uh, our host is Mike. 
Uh, I'm the host today, and I will be going around with the data bowl. Also, there are some um, munchies, uh, some of which are helpful, and some of which are less helpful. But please, thank you, sir. Are any of them harming or not? <laughs> <laughs> I should have rephrased that. <laughs> no spiders, though. <laughs> I have arachnophobia, too. Correct. Jeff? Hi. Uh, as some of you know, I started a GoFundMe campaign for a dear friend of mine in India. I met him in 2013 when he was sort of a bellhop at a guest inn in the Himalayan villages, one of them. And uh, he's from a peasant village. His father left him and his family when he was six years old. And when he was 14, he had to get out of school because his mother became ill. He had an older brother who was chronically depressed. But he's, ever since he was 14, always wanted to buy a taxi and go into business for himself. He's very smart, like a lot of young men in India who uh, have no credentials. And uh, if they're lucky, they get a job like his that he has now in Delhi, the most polluted city in the world, working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And it crushes their souls. And, uh, so I started a campaign to try and raise $18,000 to buy the taxi. Uh, and the selfish disclaimer here is that I get to go to India and food spy travel expenses. Mm -hmm. But uh, if we get as little even as $8,000, uh, we can get a loan for the remaining amount, and then any additional donations would go to paying off the car. So we're at 2400 now. and. Uh, when you think about your hula hoop of generosity this season, uh, please include Kamala and his family. I have on the table uh, flyers uh, with tear-off uh, web address you can take, and uh, the, whole, the whole copy of the, the story itself is out there as well. So, thanks. Other announcements? Um, yeah. Yes. Um, I, I have a ticket for uh, Follies, the video of the British production in Berkeley for next Thursday. Um, and it's, a, it's really a great, uh, great recording. And it's a Sondheim musical, and it's been, uh, it's been done in London and the United States the last two years with great success. It's just an amazing show, and it really gets people who have aged a little bit. It's very uh, provocative. Hmm. Is it fun? Is it film? It's a video of the play. It's more. It's pretty filmic, but it's, it's a video. It's a series that they do in the National Theater <coughs> productions. Sometimes the other big theaters over there. Excellent. Right. In Berkeley, as I didn't say. Thursday, 7 o'clock. Excellent. Well, uh, are there any other announcements? One addition, I just wanted to say the reason I'm going to India is because I would oversee the purchase of the car of the funds itself, so it's not going to go through a family account or anything like that. That makes sense. Wonderful. Uh, let's gather in a circle for our dedication merit.
By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.